2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're so glad that you're here for this time, this month. We're going to be looking at some amazing things. Now, this morning's message is going to be different. We're going to be using quite a bit of technology, and uh, we're praying that it all works. Amen? Because I'm a technological idiot, and uh, Pastor Nathan does a good job, so we'll see if I can get it to work right. But here's the thing. There are so many things that are going on in our world right now. I mean, you can't turn on the television without seeing something that the Bible told us was going to happen. It's amazing. And you have to be just spiritually blind not to see what's going on. And when we look at this morning's message, we look at what the Bible has said about Jerusalem, about Israel, and then we look at what when we see what is happening. Folks, we're living in the last of the last days. Now, here's what I want you to know, though. We can look at those things and we can become shaken. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, or we beg you, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, a letter that someone has written that claims to be from one of the apostles, as that the day of Christ is at hand. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that when you hear all the stuff that's going on, don't be shaken. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled in mind or in spirit because God's in control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But I'll tell you what, when the world sees what's going on, they are becoming shaken. Even seasoned players on the world stage are shaken by events taking place right now. I want you to see something. We're back with former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., John Bolton. Um, bad day at the U.N., yeah, I have to say, I was very shaken by this speech. Uh, I was disturbed by it. That is someone who has been involved in world politics for 30 years. The ambassador to the United Nations knows exactly what's going on, and he hears a speech by our president at the United Nations, and he's shaken. He's disturbed. Why? Why does that happen? Now, we're going to be seeing some things about our current president in the global situation today. Now, don't think that this is simply a Democrat issue. If you see Pastor Nathan, you can get a message that I preached maybe two years ago called uh, a leader's ignorance of the word of God is a dangerous thing, where I take to task President Bush on the same subject. We're just dealing with the president that's in office right now. This is not a Democrat-Republican issue. Amen? We want to know what the truth is. We want to know what's going on. When we look at what's going on in the world, even seasoned players on the world stage are shaken by events taking place right now. I want you to see something. There's an old saying. It says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at the morning, sailors take warning. How many of you ever heard that before? If you're on the water. Do you know that that's been around since Jesus Christ? 
Look at what Jesus said. He quotes that in verse 2, and then he says in Matthew 16, 2, 16, 3 here, he says, O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? These Pharisees, they could know when they should go sailing just by looking at the sky, but they didn't know the Messiah was with them. They didn't know what time it was. So here's my question to you. What time is it? What time is it? You know, we'll look at our watches and it's a little bit before 11 here on a Sunday. But what time is it globally? What time is it on God's timetable? Israel is God's timepiece. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you need to look at what's going on with the nation of Israel. Let me give you an example. Micah, and we're not going to take the time to look at it. If you want to, you can. But Micah 4.1 says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. What the Bible says is that in the last days, Israel is going to control, the Jews are going to control the temple mount, and there's going to be a temple there. Now, how many of you know there's no temple there right now? You have the Dome of the Rock is what's there right now. One of the highest places. It's the third highest place in in Islamic worship. It's on the Temple Mount. But the Bible tells us that in the last days, there's going to be a temple. Well, you know that there are preparations right now in Israel to rebuild the temple. We're going to be looking at some of those things another time. But the Bible tells us very clearly that there's going to be a temple. Well, that means that if we look at what's going on in Israel and we understand that they are making the preparations for the temple, the Bible tells us when there is a temple and people are gathering to it, that's the last days. Look in the book of Luke with me. Luke chapter 21. Jesus Christ is talking about the destruction of the current temple, the temple that would have been there when he was living on earth. He's still alive, amen. And look what it says in verse 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What time is it? What time is it? Israel shall be led away captive. AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, comes in, destroys Israel because of the rebellion of the Jews. He destroys the temple, sacks Israel. Israel ceases to be a nation. They're scattered abroad. But the Bible says, It'll be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. May 14th, 1948, there was a new nation established. Isaiah, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 66, he says this, Can a nation be born in a day? Yeah, May 14th, 1948. A nation that was not a nation became a nation again that had been scattered abroad for 1900 years. 
What time is it? What time is it? See, the Bible tells us that when we look at the nation of Israel, we can know where we are in God's timetable. It's vitally important that we know that. The nation of Israel. Something that's interesting, and I've, we're going to be reading a lot, so I put this up on the... It's, all of this information will be here on the screen for you. Something that's interesting about Israel is Israel's history is pre-written. Uh, I do a lot of historical research. I read histories. But very rarely are those histories written before they happen. Prophecy is God writing history before it happens. Israel's history is pre-written. Israel's destiny is distinct from the church. The church. What is the church? The church is a called out assembly. That's what the word means. It's a called out assembly. So when the Bible talks about the church in the New Testament, it's talking about a group, a called out assembly of born again, baptized believers meeting voluntarily in a specific location for the purpose of carrying out the Great Commission, preaching, exhortation, observing and defending the ordinances, and doing all things whatsoever the Lord commanded. That's a church. It's not a nation. It's not a nation. Amen? There's a difference between the state and the church. Israel is not a church. The church is not Israel. They're different. There are Jews who are born again and so are part of the church. Amen? But the church is not Israel. Two different things. There are 75 references in the New Testament to the nation of Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 emphasize Israel's destiny, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. Remember, so much of the destruction, you've heard of the Crusades, where, where the church went in and killed Armenians and Jews and Muslims and anyone that was in the Holy Land to take it back over, the Crusades. Why did they do that? Because they thought the church had replaced Israel. It hasn't. They're separate. They're distinct. One of the greatest mistakes in the Bible is what's called replacement theology. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 detail the, the 70th week of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verses, around verse 24, the Bible describes 70 weeks of history of the world from that point on. He's declared 70 weeks. Well, between the 69th and the 70th week, there's a gap. You and I are living in it. That 70th week that the Bible describes is coming very quickly. And the 70th week deals with the nation of Israel, not with the church. The church is taken out. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians. He says, don't be deceived that the day of Christ is upon you. You're not going to know when the day of Christ happens until you're taken out. You're gone. You know as a believer, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, when Jesus Christ returns for born-again people, you are going to be taken out of this world, and then God again begins to focus on Israel, the nation of Israel. Don't be shaken. Don't be deceived. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 37 that Israel would be regathered. Now that's happened. Now regathered. Shall a nation be born in a day? It happened. It happened. Now, this is the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to look at it in your Bible, you can. I have it up here. Genesis chapters 12, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Here's what God promised Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. 
He said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Why is he going to be a blessing? Because the Messiah is going to come through the nation of Israel. Amen? And any of you love Jesus here? Well, we have been blessed because of Israel. That's the point. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is the promise of God. So here's the question. Are we as a nation currently blessing Israel or cursing them? What the Bible says is, as we bless Israel, God will bless us. If we go against Israel, then God will curse us. What are we doing? Now listen to where we are. If we bless Israel, God will bless us. If we curse Israel, what will God do? Okay, this is last week. This is last Tuesday. This is as current as we could find it at the United Nations. We continue to call on Palestinians to end incitement against Israel. Stop right And now. we continue to end... Okay. Let's have Palestine stop incitement against Israel. Did you hear how quiet it was? Did you hear, did you hear anything from the crowd? Go ahead. Emphasize that America does not accept the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements. The time. The time has come. The time has come to relaunch negotiations without preconditions that address the permanent status issues security for Israelis and Palestinians. Borders, refugees, and Jerusalem. And the goal is clear. Two states living side by side in peace and security. A Jewish state of Israel with true security for all Israelis and a viable independent Palestinian state with contiguous territory that ends the occupation that began in 1967 and realizes the potential of the Palestinian people. You need to understand what he's saying there. The idea of a Palestinian state, we're going to see this in a minute. The idea of a Palestinian state was never espoused by the United States government until the last Bush administration. Never. Never. You know why? There's no such thing as a Palestinian state. There never has been. There never has been. And so when he says these things, notice he says we've got to stop incitement by the Palestinians against Israel. And it's quiet. What is that incitement? Launching missiles into schools. Incitement. And they're calling this, uh, he's calling this occupation. It's not occupation. Israel was attacked by Arab nations. They won and they established a security perimeter based on the result of that battle, of that victory. Our president just called that occupation. That means you and I are occupying Blue Jacket territory. Doesn't it? See, we've got to understand what's going on. What time is it? I'll bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. The Abrahamic covenant was God's commitment. This is God's commitment of the land to his descendants. Now, of course, that's a much broader piece of land than what Israel has now. 
All right? We're not going to take the time to go there. The Bible says they'd be estranged for 400 years. That happened when they were in Egypt. But will return with great possession. Now, look at this. This Abrahamic covenant, God declared it to be eternal and unconditional. A conditional covenant would be, if we, then he. You know, the Bible says that. If we, which are called by name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. That's a conditional covenant. This is an unconditional covenant, and it's an eternal covenant. God reconfirmed it by an oath. He said, I swear that this is true. He confirmed it to Isaac and Jacob despite their acts of disobedience. And the New Testament declares it immutable in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. That means unchangeable. God has promised Israel the land. He has promised that not only the land, it's not just a real estate issue, that this is where the, the king, the Messiah, will rule and reign through that people. It's vitally important. This is not a side issue to human history. This is the centerpiece of human history. Now, I want to talk to you about some of the myths of Palestine. This becomes really important because you just heard that there needs to be a viable Palestinian state. Well, let me give you some of the myths that are propagated through the United Nations and through our media. All right. The first one is this is where the name Palestine comes from. The name uh, Romans named its providence. It's this province, Palestina. Why? Because after these two rebellions that are listed there, they wanted to control Israel, so they named it after the Philistines. That's what the name means. Now, how many of you know that Israel and the Philistines were not friends? This was an insult to the Jews. That's where the name Palestine came from. Now, here's what you need to understand about the Palestinian state. The idea of, Palestini of Palestinians controlling it, it it's... It's a fabrication. It's complete fiction. Look at this. After the Roman Empire, you had the Byzantine Empire ruling it, the Muslim empires. And what's interesting about it is Muslims didn't care about Jerusalem. They didn't care about Israel until they found out how important it was to the Jews. It was ruled from Damascus and Baghdad, Syria and Iraq. It wasn't ruled from Jerusalem. Then... After that, you had the Crusaders, those great Christians, right? Those great Christians, they'd have contests to see how many babies they could fit on a sword. Is that Christ-like? If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus said, then would my enemies, then would my followers, my servants fight. Peter, put up your sword. Picks up the ear and he wipes it off and puts it back on the guy's head. Uh, they, they, they just, they're so wrong. But anyway, they ruled it. Then Mamelukes from Egypt, the Turks from Istanbul, they ruled it from Egypt, they ruled it from Istanbul. Then the British Mandate. Now, this is really important, the British Mandate. After World War I, when the British took over, what they said was, we are going to establish a new solution for this problem. We're going to establish a Jewish state. But they took 70% of the land. Now, listen to what I'm saying. 70% of the land that was supposed to go to take care of the Jewish state, they gave to Jordan. The country of Jordan now, it was called Transjordan. And that's the land that was supposed to be there to solve the Israeli problem. The idea of giving the Jews a permanent place to live through the Balfour Declaration. So there is a Palestinian state. It's called Jordan. The Palestinians can live there. The issue is not where they live. 
The issue is not the land. They don't care about the land. They hate Israel. All right, so now let's go on. All right, the global lie. The world has sided with Islam and its false claim to the land of Israel, which is now inaccurately called Palestine. This promised land given to Israel by the God of the Bible has been occupied by Jews continuously for the last 3,000 years, and they are the only people to have done so. In recognition of that undeniable historic fact, all of Palestine was to be given to the Jews for a national homeland by 1917 ruling of the League of Nations. But look what the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the Lord, or the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Now remember, I've pointed this out to you before. This is a side issue going back to our Genesis study. When God wants to identify who he is, he's the creator. Amen? That's his authority. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. It's going to boil over. That's what we see. And look what the Bible says in verse 3. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. How is it that this little city in a place of no value, it's no longer a trade route, it doesn't even have a harbor. How is it that this is the center of the world? Because God said he was going to make it a cup of trembling. Remember, the history of the world is a history of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. The city of God and the city of Satan. And look at what he says. He says, And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Folks, that is coming. So here's the question. Is a two-state solution possible? That's what our president just called for. A two-state solution. Is that even possible? Let's look at what we have here. Yeah, well, th this is the most radical anti-Israel speech I can recall any president making. I just want to let me just. I was just going to ask you two, that. two phrases in what you just heard. Yeah, the president says America does not accept, and I'm quoting now, the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements, not new Israeli settlements, continued Israeli settlements. Which you know, this is Mr. Wordsmith here. That calls into question, in my mind, all Israeli settlements. Then he says that we want a Palestinian state that's contiguous. By the way, guys in the West Bank were never contiguous Palestinian areas before. And that ends the occupation that, that began in 1960. Okay, he's calling for a contiguous Palestinian state. A Palestinian state with contiguous borders. That means they go together. You know, we talk about the contiguous United States. That's the mainland. And then we have Alaska and Hawaii. All right, but the contiguous United States are that which is connected. Now, here's the idea. He's calling that for Palestine. Well, if Palestine has contiguous borders, then Israel doesn't. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. That means, I think, a return to the 67 borders. Now, he doesn't say that. Show me, that's okay. certainly implicit in this statement. Show me, show, me, show me what this means. Okay. Here's Gaza. Um, here's uh, the West Bank. Con contiguous, 
means that it, it should go like this. Well, that, that or the idea is a road between Gaza Strip and uh, it makes it contiguous because you're going to make it Palestinian territory. There's one small problem so with wait, that. Is it, but that, then, then Israel is not contiguous. Yeah, well, do you think that matters to the Palestinians? I mean, that, that is the kind of approach to an issue that is attempting to decide the outcome of the negotiations before the negotiations. That's why I think Pause the Israelis... Do, do you see what they're saying? They're, what, what President Obama is calling for are peace negotiations where the outcome will be contiguous borders for Palestine. So what he's saying is, Israel, come talk to us, but understand when you come talk to us, what our goal is, is for you to d divide your nation. All right? Go ahead. They should be worried. He's laid out where he wants to end up. Can you show me where, uh, where is 1967? Well, on this map, the territories that are, that are brown, uh, west of the Jordan River and the Gaza Strip, are the so-called occupied territories. And the pre-67, the 67 borders Pause would put that. is... Do you see what he's talking about? They're circled in red. These are what are called occupied territories, here and here. And what they did was they took that land. You see how narrow that strip is right there? If they go back to the 67 borders, then that is all of the land Israel would have right there. Look where Jerusalem is. It's indefensible. It is indefensible. All right, go ahead. Back there, with only a very narrow strip between Palestinian okay. territory Jerusalem. and the Mediterranean, and and that would be that would remain divided. That would not okay. be the capital. We are not. For, we have never been for a divided Jerusalem. Well, we have said it's a matter for the final negotiations. Our State Department, over the years, has resisted uh, any effort by the Israelis to say that Jerusalem is a unified city and the capital of their country. The only country I'm aware of where the United States disputes what the capital is. Did we sell out Israel today? I think, I think it's very close to it. I, 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 as I say, I think it's the most anti-Israel speech I can remember by an American president. And the, the important thing is when you have the Palestinians in as weak a position as they are now, to have Barack Obama be their lawyer, in effect, puts them in a very strong bargaining place. All right. We need to understand the battle that we are in, folks. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We need to know what's going on. So is a two-state solution possible? Can we even do this? Two-state solution. Number one, there are currently two Palestinian entities which are hostile to each other. In Gaza, you have Hamas, and in the West Bank, you have Fatah. Who's going to speak for both of them? When you negotiate with one, the other rejects it. Where are you going to get the two-state system from? The geography and economy of any Palestinian state is too reliant on Israel to be truly independent. What most Americans don't know is Palestinians who work, work in Israel. That's where the money comes from. Now, let me say this. Israel has not always been kind to the Palestinians. I'm not saying they're right in everything they do, but God has promised them the land. Is that right? You need to understand that before the 67 invasion, the people in Israel were living just fine with Palestinians. It was the invasion that caused the problem. So now, the geography 
An economy of any Palestinian state is too reliant on Israel to be truly dependent or truly independent. No Palestinian government would have the power to guarantee that rogue elements would not launch rockets at Israel's heartland, the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem corridor. You saw how small that was, right? We're talking 50 miles from here to Dayton. Now, when we think of missiles, I don't know that we understand what they're shooting into Israel. That's what they're shooting into Israel. How many of you that surprises you? You thought it was something smaller. This is what this is what we're talking about. It's not somebody launching a little hand grenade. We're talking about missiles. Look at what Benjamin Netanyahu said at the United Nations this week. Hamas fired rockets. Fired those rockets from Gaza on nearby Israeli citizens and citizens. Thousands of missiles, mortars, hurling down from the sky on schools, on homes, shopping centers, bus stops. Years after, year after year, as these missiles were deliberately fired on our civilians, not a single, not one UN resolution was passed condemning those criminal attacks. We heard nothing, absolutely nothing, from the UN Human Rights Council, a misnamed institution if there ever was one. In 2005, hoping to advance peace, Israel unilaterally withdrew from every inch of Gaza. Pause that. Now, he is speaking at the United Nations this week. And he has just told them what they have been doing. All right? This, it's unbelievable. Can you imagine? Not one time. We looked at the passage a minute ago in Zechariah that said all the nations of the earth would be against Israel. That's where we are. That's where we are. Go ahead. It was very painful. Oh, pause it right there again. I wanted to mention this. Where, he's, where he is right now, he's talking about in 2005 where they made, the, Jew, the, the Israeli government made people leave Gaza. The, and they tore down, they bulldozed the settlements and the farms in order to, to gain peace. This is what... We dismantled 21 settlements, really bedroom communities and farms, we uprooted over 8,000 Israelis. We just yanked them out from their homes. We did this because many in Israel believed that this would get peace. Well, we didn't get peace. Instead, we got an Iranian-backed terror base 50 miles from Tel Aviv. But life in the Israeli towns and cities immediately next to Gaza became nothing less than a nightmare. You see, the, the Hamas rocket launchers and the rocket attacks not only continued after we left, they actually increased dramatically. They increased tenfold. And again, the UN 
was silent. Absolutely silent. Ladies and gentlemen, nearly 62 years ago, the United Nations recognized the rights of the Jews, an ancient people 3,500 years old, to a state of their own in their ancestral homeland. I stand here today as the Prime Minister of Israel, the Jewish state, and I speak to you on behalf of my country and my people. The United Nations was founded after the carnage of World War II, after the horrors of the Holocaust. It was charged with preventing... Those are the empty seats of the Iranian delegation. They refused to even be in there while Netanyahu was speaking. And remember what, what Ahmadinejad says every time he goes there. He calls for the destruction of the Jewish state, which will be wiped out. And he also denies that the Holocaust ever took place. That's what he does at the United Nations. The reoccurrence of such horrendous events. Nothing has undermined that mission. Nothing has impeded it more than the systematic assault on the truth. Yesterday, the president of Iran stood at this very podium, spewing his latest anti-Semitic rants. This is just last week. Just a few days earlier, he again claimed that the Holocaust is a lie. Last month, I went to a villa in a suburb of Berlin called Wannsee. There, on January 20th, 1942, after a hearty meal, senior Nazi officials met and decided to exterminate my people. They left detailed meetings or minutes of that meeting. And these minutes have been preserved for posterity by successive German governments. Here is a copy of the minutes of the meeting of senior Nazi officials instructing the Nazi government exactly how to carry out the extermination of the Jewish people. Is this protocol a lie? Is the German government, all German governments, lying? A day before I was in Wannsee, I was given in Berlin the original construction plans for the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. These plans, these plans of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration plans I now hold in my hand. 
They contain a signature by Heinrich Himmler, Hitler's deputy himself. Are these plans of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp where one million Jews were murdered? Are they a lie too? This June, President Obama visited another concentration camp, one of many, the Buchenwald concentration camp. Did President Obama pay tribute to a lie? And what of the Auschwitz survivors whose arms still bear the tattooed numbers branded on them by the Nazis? Are those tattoos a lie too? One-third of all Jews perished in the great conflagration of the Holocaust. Nearly every Jewish family was affected. Can you imagine, as a Jewish person now, living in this world, and th this body, the United Nations, supports this kind of an agenda? Notice, huge applause when they say stop the Israeli occupation. Nothing when the president said, let's keep Israel safe. Because they do not recognize it. It wasn't until about three years ago the United Nations even recognized Israel as a nation. It's unbelievable. That is the world that we live in. That is how Jerusalem is a cup of trembling, just as the Bible said it would be. I want you to see this. Well, let's start here. In 1967, and I know this is probably hard for you to see. I'll try and help it with this. Here you have the Jordanian army. It came in to attack. The Iraqi forces came in to attack. From up here, this is the Syrian army. Um, then the Lebanese army came through here. Down through here, the Egyptian army was coming in. And what Israel did, they, there were almost a million troops surrounding Israel. So what Israel did was they attacked preemptively and in about 90 minutes decimated the Jordanian Air Force. This it ended up being a six-day war, and this was a miracle of God. There is no way that Israel's small forces could defeat all of these forces. So what happened was Israel then took over this area in order to, uh, to keep a safe harbor, the West Bank area. They took that over in order to have safety. The Bible tells us, though, that there's coming another invasion. And this is the battle of Gog and Magog. This is found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And I'm just going to cover this with you to show you the, the political system that we have now and how Israel is a cup of trembling. All right, Persia, that's Iran. All right, Magog, that's Russia. Gomer, Magog and Gomer, that's Russia. Meshach, some people believe that that would be Turkey, but Tubal is certainly Turkey. 
This, all of these countries are going to gather together. Down here, Cush, that's, that's Libya. All right? Foot is um, Sudan. So all of these, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking, in the last several years, um, Muammar Gaddafi, had, he had come to a settlement with the Lockerbie, the, the families of the bombing in Lockerbie, Scotland, the plane that, was, that crashed. But that was only after we invaded Iraq, and he was nervous that he was going to be next. So he paid reparations, but then they openly received the bomber that Scotland released, right? That just happened in the last several weeks. Then, at the United Nations, this, just this past week, here he is again calling for the destruction of Israel and all of that. So Libya is going to be one of the nations that comes against Israel. The Bible has prophesied this. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand. The Bible says that Iran is going to be leading it and that Russia is going to be supplying it. Who is supplying Iran with their weapons right now? Russia. Who is supplying? There has just been a new, in the last two years, a new alliance between these nations and Russia. The Bible said it would happen, and we're seeing it right now. Israel. Jerusalem, a cup of trembling. Now, here's what we need to understand, and I'm going to go through this quickly. The origins of Islam. And this is, we have to understand that we are in a religious war. It is a religious war. It's not peaceful Islam and, and um, uh, radical Islam. Islam did not begin with Muhammad, or the origins of it did not begin with Muhammad. The Allah was a moon god, and he was the lord of the Kaaba. And Islam is occultic and openly hostile to the West, both Jews and Christians. Here's the agenda of Islam. Islam divides the universe into two parts. Dar al-Islam, that's the dominion of the faithful. Dar al-Harb, those with whom they are at war until Judgment Day. That's it. You know, we talk about there's only two kinds of people in the world. Not rich or poor, not black and white. Those who have the Son and they have eternal life and those who don't have the Son and don't have eternal life. That's what the Bible says. Islam states that there are only two kinds of people, the faithful and those with which we are at war. All right? Then, with an irrevocable commitment to conquer the West and now with nuclear weapons, their agenda can no longer be ignored. This idea of a nuclear-powered Iraq, I mean Iran, it's crazy. We need to understand how delicate this situation is. Then, this is from the Quran, Surah 9.5. Fight and slay the pagans, the infidels, wherever you find them and seize them. Beleaguer them. Lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. Does that sound like terrorism? It's commanded. These are not just radicals. If Islam is resisted, their punishment is execution or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from the opposite sides or exile from the land. So here's some crucial questions. Who could so carefully plan and efficiently execute such incredibly inhumane destruction and slaughter? What cause could so powerfully motivate educated and trained individuals to sacrifice their own lives and the lives of so many total strangers in this manner? Here's the idea. We have that you have a few crazy people. That's what you hear. A few crazy people. In the minds of civilized people, 
These men were unbelievable fanatics like the 9-11 guys. But were they? Is this fanaticism? Could one call the spiritual leader of an entire major country a fanatic? A man universally recognized as properly representing his religion? Who would know his religion better than the spiritual leader himself? Such was Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini when he declared, The purest joy in Islam is to kill and be killed for Allah. Now, you've got to understand, he is not just the the, the speaker for radical Islam. He speaks for Islam. Is this fanaticism? Are they fanatics who obey him today in exacting the death penalty on Muslims? As in Afghanistan, the Arab Emirates, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, and even in the U.S., who for the sake of conscience convert to another religion. You understand that if you convert to Christianity from Islam, you are under a death penalty. And it happens every day in the world. Global hypocrisy. Who dares to make the obvious connection between the declaration of war against America and the declaration of war against the entire world by Muhammad in the 7th century, a part of Islam ever since? Now remember, we had the Barbary pirates attacking us. We made war against Islam under Thomas Jefferson. It's nothing new. Since its inception, jihad has been waged by Islamic warriors to spread their religion of violence and hatred. Islam does not change. Rioting Muslim mobs invariably chant in their fanaticism, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And that means not Allah is great, it means Allah is greater. A religion of peace? Yet there are more than 100 verses in the Quran advocating the use of violence to spread Islam. In the Quran, Allah commands Muslims to take not the Jews and Christians as friends. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Fight against such as believe not in Allah. This is official Islam. It cannot change without admitting that Muhammad was a false prophet and a murderer. Do you see where multiculturalism takes us? We can't even tell the truth. How can we fight against a people? How can we win a war when we won't even identify the enemy? It's crazy. Terrorists are not fanatics, but devout fundamentalist Muslims who are earnestly following their religion, or like the Bible says, earnestly contending for the faith. This candid recognition should bring fresh sympathy for Muslims of all nationalities who are tragically trapped in that system. Any of you ladies? Would any of you ladies like to go and move to Iran right now? Saudi Arabia? Crucial caveat, warning. We all need to understand the origin, nature, and agenda of Islam. We do not suggest that the rank-and-file Muslims are guilty of the extremism characterizing the terrorist leadership. But we do need to understand what we are really up against and not be blinded by politically correct propaganda. Five myths of Islam. Islam is a religion of love. Love is nowhere commanded in the Quran. It's not a religion of love. Jesus summarized the Bible by quoting two verses, Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Islam, this is another myth, Islam is a religion of peace. 
It is based on a militant agenda of conquest. Here's another myth. Allah and the God of the Old Testament are the same. No, they're complete opposites. The Allah, what is it that they say Allah wills it? You don't have any idea what Allah wants. He, he, is, he, he changes his mind and whatever he does, whatever he's whimsical. Our God loves to tell the truth and stick with the truth. He loves to make a promise and fulfill it. They're not the same God. They say the Quran is a holy book. It's not a holy book. It was written by a demon-possessed man. And they say that they accept Jesus as a prophet. They don't accept Jesus as a prophet. They accept Muhammad. Wahhabism. This is the true Islamic sect. 80% of loyal imams, that's the Muslim clergy, in 3,000 mosques of the United, Sta of the United States. 80% of the imams, the, the religious leaders in Islam that are found in the United States are Wahhabis. It is the strictest of four legal schools of Islam. It enforces literal interpretation of the Quran. It's critical of less legalistic, such as Sufism and other types. This is, this is what Islam is. It's Wahhabism. It's backed by Saudi Arabia's wealth and zeal. It was revived by this Wahhab with the military founder of the Saudi dynasty. And this is the rebuttal to secular socialism. When you see Islam, it's Wahhabism. That's what Osama bin Laden is. This Wahhabism is what has taken over Islam, and it is the core of it. We are dealing with a theological conflict, not traditional geopolitical or economic goals. Osama bin Laden said it best. This is a war between Islam and Christianity. Why don't we just believe him? It's interesting. We don't believe him. Our leaders don't believe him. No, no, this isn't a war with Islam. This is a war with just a few people. Jihad will never end. It will last to the day of judgment. This is from Cairo University. Show me a moderate Muslim, and I will show you one who is not following the dictates of the leadership. March 16th, 2009, communique. Taliban, contrary to what Obama says, there are no moderates or extremists among us. They're just Muslims. That's from the Taliban. Islamic eschatology. And this is what we need to understand. How many of you believe Jesus Christ is going to return? All right. They also believe Jesus Christ is going to return with the Mahdi. Both Sunni and Shiite allude to the return of Jesus and the Mahdi and the killing of the Antichrist. Shiite traditions emphasize the role of the Mahdi as the actual descendant of Muhammad, the 12th Imam who did not die in 873, but was occulted and will appear at the end time. This is their religion. This is what Ahmadinejad believes. One can thus shudder at the serious conviction of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad that he is destined, listen, he believes, he is destined and committed to cause the appearance of the 12th Imam by ushering in the last days. And what you need to understand, and this is what I don't think that even Christians get, he doesn't care if we destroy Iran, if it'll bring in the Imam. See, here's what people say. He won't use this bomb because he knows what would happen. He doesn't care. He would be more than willing to fly a plane into a building. He doesn't care because he's a fanatic. He is completely sold out to his religion. How is the world responding to this obvious agenda? Let me just have you listen to 
This is from last week. This is how the Israeli Prime Minister put it. Yesterday, the man who calls the Holocaust a lie spoke from this podium. To those who refused to come and to those who left in protest, I commend you. You stood up for moral clarity and you brought honor to your countries. But to those who gave this Holocaust denier a hearing, I say on behalf of my people, the Jewish people, and decent people everywhere, have you no shame? Have you no decency? A mere six decades after the Holocaust, you give legitimacy to a man who denies the murder of six million Jews while promising to wipe out the state of Israel, the state of the Jews? What a disgrace. What a mockery of the Charter of the United Nations. Aren't you glad to have somebody finally tell those people what's going on? And we need to understand that our media, our government, is very much in agreement with the United Nations on all of this. That's where we are. And remember what God said. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Why did God destroy the world in the flood? Because the thoughts of men were only evil continually. Is America any better? Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the wickedness of that city cried unto God. Is our wickedness any less? No. Why has God not destroyed America? Because I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. As we turn against Israel, God's hand of protection is going to be removed. I told my children, we watched President Obama's speech, and I told my children, I said, kids, you need to understand something. You may have just witnessed the end of the United States. You might be sitting out there and you're thinking, Pastor, you're crazy. You're just one of these extremists. You're nuts. What did God say? I'll bless them that bless thee. Curse them that curse thee. So now, what are we going to do? We need to understand the ultimate triumph. In Matthew chapter 23, it's not verse 97, it's verse 37. But Matthew 23, 37, Jesus Christ gives the purpose of all history. Understand all history with Israel. Remember, the, the, the theme of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is coming to sit on His throne. That's the theme of the Bible. But we need to understand the purpose of His history with Israel is found in verse 37. He says, Oh, is, oh Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen does her chicks? That's what God wants to do. He wants Israel to come to him. But the ultimate tragedy, the ultimate tragedy in the dealing with Israel is the next verse, verse 38. And he says, but you would not. But you would not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Do you want to know what the good news is? The triumph of all history, the triumph of all history. Listen to what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27 or 23. 
For I say unto you, this is verse 39, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is coming back. That is the triumph of all of history. Jesus is coming back, and when He comes back, He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. Amen? He is going to rule and reign from His throne in Jerusalem. That is what's going to happen. Now, with everything that's going on, You might get a little nervous for Israel. Look with me at Psalm 121 and we'll be done. Psalm 121. Do you remember when Mordecai came to Esther? The Jews were going to be destroyed by by Haman, evil Haman, wicked Haman the Bible calls him. And Mordecai is telling Esther she needs to go and tell the king what's going on and ask for help. And Esther is afraid, and Mordecai said to her, Who knows? It could be that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But what did he say to her? He said, Look, deliverance, if it doesn't come through, it'll come from another. God's going to deliver Israel, but maybe God will use you. Look what the Bible says here, Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Don't worry about Israel. You need to worry about what side you're on. (laughs) Amen? I'll tell you what. God is a majority all by Himself. And we need to understand that we as a nation must stand behind Israel. We must. But more importantly than that, I personally have to be united with the Son of God. Jesus Christ is looking at you today and He's saying, I want to gather you to Me. Remember what He said, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He wants to be your Savior. He said, If I be lifted up, and that was on the cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Me. Jesus wants to draw you to himself. You say, well, all this is crazy political stuff today. It is crazy political stuff because we live in a crazy world. But God told us every bit of it was going to happen. Detail by detail by detail. You can trust this book. You can trust the Savior. The first time he came as our Savior. The second time he's coming as our judge. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of sinful men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, here's the thing that's so important. We're all going to bow before Jesus. We can bow now willingly and say, You're my Lord. Or we can bow later and say, You're my Lord and Judge. 
See, the Bible says, God judgeth no man, but hath given all judgment unto His Son. Jesus Christ can be your Savior or your judge. I hope that you'll submit to Him today. We're living in a world that's being shaken right now. Even leaders are shaken. We don't have to be shaken because we believe in the God who laid it all out before it ever happened. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word.